Welcome back to another Cardinals off day. Uh, this off day is Thursday, April 22nd. The Cardinals are 8-10. and 10. That puts them on pace to go 72-90, and 90, which is not great. Uh, ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, uh, as well as one can do on a two-game losing streak. Um, although, you know, losing a couple of hard-fought close games... Uh, is not fun. It's a little bit better than like getting blown out by the Brewers at home. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The last couple games that we've lost, I felt were respectable losses that I could was like, okay, this, this is what happens in baseball games. Sometimes I can live with this. So, uh, so anyway, that's, that's the last couple games, but it's been about a week since we last had an off day. So Ben, what do you feel like you've learned? Um, I have learned that Carlos Martinez's shoulder is less of a concern than it was uh, during our last episode and in the the games that preceded it. Uh, the last couple of games, he has felt comfortable dialing up that four-seam fastball uh, into the 93 to 95 mile per hour range. Uh, and this was particularly true in Washington today. And uh, what I have noticed is when he's getting toward the end of his leash as a starter, uh, he seems to be willing to go to that four-seam fastball, almost as if he's saying, if I'm going to get knocked out of the game, I'm going to get knocked out of the game with my heat. Uh, and today, the last batter he faced uh, was Kyle Schwarber, and uh, he through for his second pitch, a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, for his fourth pitch, a 93.8-mile-an-hour fastball, for his fifth pitch, a 95.4-mile-per-hour fastball, and for his sixth pitch, a swinging strike, a 94.3 four-seam fastball. And uh, this has gone a long way toward uh, reducing my concern about his ability to stick as a starter Uh, given his shoulder issues, because he seems to get more comfortable dialing up the four-seam fastball as the game goes on. And uh, if he's mixing that in with the cutter and the two-seamer, instead of relying on the cutter and the two-seamer, almost to the exclusion of the four-seamer, I think we're going to see a very dynamic pitcher along the lines of what we saw in D.C. today. Nice, nice. Well, and uh, for what I learned, and actually we, we kind of talked about this beforehand, and this was something that you had as well, but uh, I uh, am going to talk about Justin Williams, and I feel like Justin Williams really did uh, step up in the last week, and he's he's looked like a real legit player out there. And I think uh, over the last couple weeks, really, since O'Neal left, he has looked to me like the best option out there outside of Dylan Carlson that's on the team right now. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see um, with O'Neill expected to come back after the off day and rejoin the team. How does that affect the mix out there? And there's a lot of moving pieces to that. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more because of course, Tommy Edmonds spent some time out there, but if he goes back to second, that moves Matt Carpenter. Um, so there's a lot of ways they could do that. But however they juggle that, you know, I don't think this is a situation where uh, 
O'Neill should reclaim a starting job and, and Williams should go to the bench. If anything, I would put Williams ahead of O'Neill on my depth chart right now. So uh, I feel like that's something we really kind of learned in the in the last week here. Um, so kind of rolling into our first topic, we wanted to talk a little bit about that roster churn. And there's some uh, there's things going on with the uh uh, well, uh, since we're already talking about the offense, why don't we kind of talk about uh, that that roster churn um, among the among the hitters? Well, the the Lane Thomas, I'm going to call it a cameo in the majors. It lasted two games. He did not impress, in particular, in the field. Um, and then they sent him back down to the minors, and it really felt abrupt and almost as if the Cardinals were sending a message to Thomas and perhaps other players that, you know, nothing, don't take anything for granted because we aren't going to tolerate this type of lackadaisical uh, play in the field. And the reason I say that is they called up a player that I think um, a lot of folks probably had the reaction of uh, Scott who, and that's Scott Mm -hmm. Hurst, uh, who was a draft pick after, uh, you know, Hackergate with the Houston Astros out of Cal State Fullerton. And that's the only reason I recognize the name is he was their de facto first pick in that draft, even though they didn't pick until, if I remember correctly, the third round. And uh, since his selection... But uh, but at least we know that the Astros were high on him. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yes, it was probably done using the Astros information. Uh, But, you know, since his selection, he, you know, has not done a whole lot to impress. Uh, And in particular, in 2019, the last real season that we have, uh, he was in high A, uh, played 63 games, 244 plate appearances, and then he hit 233 uh, slash 292 slash 314 for a weighted on base average of 286. Uh, for the folks at home uh, who may not be familiar with weighted on base average, that's not good. Uh, weighted on base average no. uh, gives a, a value to all the events that happen in batting. It's on the scale of on base average. So like a 400 is really good. A 286 is basically like Cesare's Turris. Uh, for whatever reason, after that production, uh, with a 7.4% walk rate and a 25% K rate, by the way, uh, they promoted him to double A. And the Texas League is usually pretty good for left-handed hitters, but it was not for Hurst in 2019. Uh, he improved his walk rate to over 10%, but he, he struck out in 28.6% of his plate appearances. He hit uh, 191 for batting average, put up an on-base percentage of 278 and a slugging percentage of 277 for a weighted on it base average of 262. I mean, that's terrible. Uh, Daniel Descalso hit in the Texas league as a lefty uh, for a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we do have a blind spot as fans because 2020, there was no minor league season. But uh, even if you look at and put way too much weight in spring training, uh, this was a really puzzling move to me. And and what was your take on it, Ben? Well, I mean, it it was a really surprising move, I'll say that. 
Um, as far as was it puzzling? I don't know. I mean, if once you're at the point, given where the roster is now with Tyler O'Neill and Harrison Bader injured, and if you feel like you need to send a message to Lane Thomas by sending him down, I, I think Hurst was just kind of the guy who was there. And, you know, so Hurst just really looks like an organizational depth type guy. And so he's the kind of guy I think more often you, you would have seen, you know, get a cup of coffee midseason when you were just absolutely decimated by injuries. And it was like, you know, who do we have at like triple A or maybe double A who can catch the ball? Like we can put them out there and they'll catch the ball. And I, I feel like that's, you know, that's why he's up there. The other reason I think in a situation like this, you call somebody like Hurst up is, uh, you know, I think he has a precarious 40 man roster spot as well. And he's somebody who's probably going to have to get moved back off of the 40 man roster. Um, and of course, that will potentially uh, he'll potentially have to go through waivers there and could be claimed by another team. You know, I don't think that the Cardinals are too concerned about that. Whereas, you know, the other outfielders who you could have maybe been options for them to bring up are guys that they have more of a long term kind of uh, you know outlook for. But yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself pretty well versed on the Cardinals system, and I'll be honest, I jumped on my I'd seen Hurst, you know get some plate appearances in, in spring. And I mean, I knew, I knew he was a guy, but I really didn't know a whole lot past that. And so I jumped online to kind of investigate him, you know, and I went to Viva Alberto's to check out, uh, you know, Aaron Schaefer's prospect rankings. And he hasn't appeared on those for a couple of years. And uh, I went over uh, to take a look at Kyle Reese's Dirty 35, another excellent prospect ranking. He's not he wasn't on it. He's not on the most recent one. And I mean, those are just a couple things that I think speak to really where Hurst is in this organization. He was not so uh, somebody there. So that was a little bit of a surprise for me. Um, Anything else on the offense or you want to kind of take a look at the pitching? I uh, I think we can move to the pitching, but I think we both agree that. Lane Thomas really squandered an opportunity here. And, and not only might he have squandered this opportunity uh, in the sort of narrow sense of, Hey, I get to go up to the majors and play. He may have squandered his opportunity to be a big leaguer in St. Louis, because this just seems incredibly drastic to me for everything that we're talking about. You know, Hurst is not someone mm-hmm. that you want to shuffle the 40-man roster to create space for. You know, that's not right. in the design. And so the fact that they were willing to do this to send Thomas down, to me, is a huge red flag when it comes uh, to Thomas. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and this organization has given tremendous runway to Lane Thomas and to Tyler O'Neill both. And really for the last, you know, two to three years, it's kind of been, hey, we have to see what we have in these outfielders. And frankly, that's basically meant we have to save a spot for either Tyler O'Neill or Lane Thomas to step up. And that's why Randy Rosarina plays for the Rays. And that's why Adolis Garcia plays for the Texas Rangers. And to, to a certain extent, that's why... Uh, Tommy Pham, uh, you know, plays for now, now the Padres. Uh, but, um, you know, these, these, these guys have been given a lot of opportunity and neither one has really, uh, you know, seized it. And so it's going to be interesting to see where they go forward on this as we kind of agreed beforehand. I mean, Justin Williams in a much more limited amount of opportunity 
has really capitalized on that a lot more. And and to me, just in a you know merit based society, I would say he looks to me like the player who you know deserves continued opportunity to to kind of see what he can do. Um, so shifting over to the uh, uh, the pitching side, and we actually had a number of kind of listener questions uh, today that I wanted to um, touch on as well. But I, 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 and a, we're going to get to those later. But I wanted to mention uh, Daniel Shapta, who's at C70 and hosts the Meet Me at Musial and Gateway to Baseball Heaven podcast, as well as blogging. He had he had said that he was hoping that we'd be discussing a series win, which of course we're not doing. But barring that, he was kind of wondering what our thoughts were on the six-man rotation thing. And as we talk about roster churn and we sort of move over to looking at pitching, I think that sort of just leads leads into that. So how are you feeling about the roster moves upcoming on, on the pitching side? Um, I feel pretty good about them. I think we're going to see Hurst go down, uh, and we're going to probably see – Nagowski go down just because he does not have really any positional flexibility. And we've talked in previous episodes how much we enjoy the sort of designated pinch hitter role and quadruple A sluggers. Uh, we now live in a triple A town, so we really enjoy ourselves some uh, large adult son quadruple A sluggers who play for space. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And John Nagowski checks every one of those boxes. Yes, yes absolutely. With, with, with the mullet, with the mullet too, yes. which is, you know, bonus points there. Absolutely. Um, but the team is entering um, a stretch where they're going to play a lot of baseball uh, without many days off. And the days off were what allowed them the luxury of Nagowski, even though the starters didn't allow them the, lo- the luxury of Nagowski, I guess, in a way, because they put a lot of strain on the, on the bullpen. But uh, we're getting to a point where I think they're going to swap a bat for an arm. And it sounds like that arm is probably going to be Oviedo. And Oviedo is probably going to be that sixth starter. And I am certainly uh, much more in favor of seeing what they have in Oviedo than I am in continuing the John Gant experiment at this point in time. Uh how how are you feeling about the idea of what they're going to do here with uh, kind of a six-man rotation here and there? Yeah. Well, you know, and I feel like they head faked us a little bit because there was a soundbite um, a day or two ago saying, you know, the, oh, maybe they'd be announcing some pitching moves here kind of coming into this off day. And they haven't really done that. And in fact, they announced that the next three in the rotation are going to be the sort of expected next three in, in the rotation. Um, and so, uh, but that said, you know, this is their, up until now, they've been able to keep all of their starters on five days rest between starts, just simply because that's how the off days were spaced out. This is the first time where that's not going to be the case. So I am pretty certain that what we're going to see is, um, you know, starting, with Friday's game, one turn through the rotation, and then that sixth game, we'll see Oviedo. And he'll get dealt in at that point, and that will allow them to keep those five days of rest there. And I think he will stay in the rotation. Um, I think it ends up being maybe two turns um, before the next off day, uh, you know, something thereabouts. And then by that next off day, then I think that's where they make a decision and, um, you know, I mean, I think we, we're going to have a little bit of a reality show situation here for the next 
um, you know, a couple weeks, basically between Oviedo and Gant. You know, some people have thought maybe Carlos was in that conversation, but I don't see that being the case. Um, you know, Kim, of course, has to show he's healthy. I mean, but, you know, somebody's uh, somebody's going to come out after this two weeks without a, an off day. Somebody's going to come out of that rotation. It's it's most likely going to be Oviedo or Gant. Um, that's kind of what I'm expecting anyway. I think you're right, and I would be surprised if uh, if Schilt relegates Gant to the bullpen. Um, Schilt seems to put stock in showing faith in guys and and fostering loyalty in that way. Um, but looking at how badly Gant has pitched, um, you know, his, his walk rate is just atrocious, just absolutely terrible. He has a 16.7% walk rate to a 19.7% strikeout rate, which by the way, a 19.7% strikeout rate is terrible also. So basically John Gant, um, in the things that he can control has been atrocious. Um, and he's just, he's also allowed a lot of hard contact and a lot of hits. And, you know, right now he has a 3.21 ERA that looks okay. And the frame and the way that he's talked about uh, a lot of the time is based on that ERA. But there is absolutely no reason to expect him to continue to allow runs at the rate he's allowing them based on how badly he is pitching. And so if he continues, the floodgates will will break is is really what I just down I have to have his stat page open. So for context, I was just going to say his uh, his xFIP is five point one four, and that's that's a lot more indicative of you know the way he's been pitching right now. Just kind of um, adding that on there, but um, yeah, no, I agree, and and you know, I think I, I think I like that they're bringing Oviedo in and doing this six man rotation thing at this moment. Um, they they seem to we, we knew that they were going to have to provide extra rest for pitchers this year. They were going to have to find some way to, you know, limit innings. Um, they didn't want to have these massive jumps in innings from the partial weird season last year to this year. You know, we didn't exactly know how they were going to do that. It seems like the Cardinals have decided that five days of rest for starters is an important thing. And, you know, I don't have the like biometric data that backs that up, but that seems pretty reasonable. And and so, you know, doing this to maintain that makes sense. You know, Oviedo certainly looks like a guy who deserves a shot at the rotation. So um, I'm uh, I'm on board for it. And you and you talked um, about innings okay. pitch jumps. Gant threw 15 innings in the shortened regular season last year. He's at 14 innings pitched right now which means he's going to surpass his innings pitch total unless there's a catastrophic result in his next start. And um, it would be quite the jump to see him continue in the rotation uh, for several weeks. Um, I mean, it would be a big jump just to take on a normal reliever uh, role, but if he's going to continue to start, I mean, you could see him, you know, throwing – 75 100 more innings than what he did last year and that would be a huge jump and i think that would be sort of a check mark in favor of oviedo perhaps sticking in the rotation until hopefully michaelis is ready to go yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, I see Gant moving back into what has traditionally been his role and what I think he's suited for, which is sort of swingman slash mop up guy. Um, and you know, and and honestly, as that position goes, uh, he's he's pretty well suited to that. He's you know, uh, teams usually have a guy like that on their roster, and I think he does that all right. Uh, someone uh, who is pitching much better for the Cardinals is Jack Flaherty, and uh, this week he crossed the 500 strikeout threshold. And this was commemorated in various places a couple different ways. I saw on the TV broadcast, they actually highlighted, I think he was the fourth youngest Cardinal to do this. But um, the the number that stuck most other places was the fact that he had done it in the fewest appearances uh, of anyone. He did it in just 80 appearances. Um, the previous record was uh, Lance Lynn, who recorded 500 strikeouts after 101 appearances. Um, and I've got some other numbers that go along with that, but but Ben, what else did you want to say about that before I kind of dive into the numbers? I just, when I, when I saw this, and Flaherty is a very good pitcher, but the thing that really hit home for me is how different Major League Baseball is now uh, during the years of, of Flaherty's career than it was you know, years ago, and I'm not going to be someone who talks about it when I was a kid, but, you know, some of the names that are coming up are like a Dizzy Dean and a Bob Gibson. And, you know, it's very impressive what Flaherty has done, but my reaction was, and this would probably actually be me channeling my, my grandpa, uh, may he rest in peace, but my reaction was kind of like, you know, comparing him to Dizzy Dean, there is no comparison because the game was so different back then. And what Dean was doing was so atypical that, you know, it's cool that they're in the same sentence, but the game is so different nowadays with so many more strikeouts. It seems to me that it, it sort of waters down Flaherty's accomplishment to a degree. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of ran with that and went and tried to look at just some more of the context around these uh, these guys. And so I'm going to just work back chronologically through the list real quick here. Uh, so Flaherty uh, reached 500 strikeouts in his 80th appearance. Um, he uh, throws uh, gets a 29% strikeout rate, Jack Flaherty does. And this year, the league average is 24.6. So Jack Flaherty above above league average and that 29% and even an average of 24%, that's huge. And that's what you're going to see as we go through this is it just has kept rising, rising, rising. But I thought it was interesting to put some context on this. So Lance Lynn, um, he uh, took 101 appearances um, to get his 500th strikeout. He did that in 2014. Um, Lance Lynn struck out around 23% of batters. So, you know, still pretty good, but but quite a bit fewer than what Flaherty's striking out these days. Uh, the league average in 2014 was 20%. Okay, so that's about a 5% jump between both Lynn and Flaherty and between the, the league average in, in just uh, about but, six years. But that's interesting because just in a percentage point measurement, Lynn was about as far ahead of the league then as Flaherty is now, which I would not have guessed. I would have put Flaherty yes. at more ahead of the league. So that I think that's very interesting. 
Yeah, and and, that, and that it's going to be interesting to see that as we as we go on here too. So uh, Bob Gibson next up on the list. Bob Gibson reached his 500th strikeout in his 110th appearance, um, and this was in uh, 1962. Uh, Bob Gibson at that time struck out batters around an 18 percent rate. Now later in his career, his best seasons, he was up around 23 percent. Um, but it, at this point, early in his career, he was striking out batters around 18% of the time. The league average was 14%. So again, we have that kind of, you know, about 5%-ish above league average where, you know, each of these guys were. Um, then lastly, Dizzy Dean uh, took Dizzy Dean t- 120 games to get his 500th strikeout. Uh, this was in 1934. Dizzy Dean was striking out 16% of batters. <laughs> the league average in 1934 was 8.8%. So, so Dizzy Dean was striking out nearly double the league average. So, uh, you know, of these guys, just looking at those percentages, you'd have to say that Dean was the the biggest sort of aberration to the, you know, the norm of his time. But all of them, you know, it, which it's not surprising, were... Uh, you know, a pretty good bump above, you know, the league average. So, but yeah, I, I think it's just, it's, it's interesting to keep these things in mind because we love our statistics in baseball and we love to look back and, um, you know, we have rate stats, we have counting stats. And uh, as much as we just love to look at, you know, them one-to-one, you know, and hold up a 1963 baseball card and a 2021 baseball card and and compare them and say, these are the same. They're not at all. And, um, you know, because those strikeout rates have been so different through these eras, uh, you know, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing when you look at the raw numbers and say, you know, this is how many games it took. Now, still a great accomplishment by Jack Flaherty, you know, and doing this in, in just 80 games. And obviously he's that 29% strikeout rate is, is very good. But um, in this era, it almost has to be, you know? Um, so anyway, those are kind of my thoughts on it. anything else on, on Flaherty. Yeah. I mean, it's a tremendous accomplishment. I just, you know, with all of the talk with Theo Epstein and it sort of all dovetails into this of what is the product that we're watching on the field and how do we get more balls in play and more action? And, you know, sort of when was baseball dubbed the national pastime and you, you look at, you know, a strikeout rate below 10% is pretty remarkable. Uh, The walk rate, oddly enough, is not that far off. Uh, It's, 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 you know, high 7.8 to 9% in, 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 and around Dean's era, but it's just really remarkable to think about what would someone who is striking out batters as a starting pitcher at double the league rate today, (laughs) they would be striking out 50% of the batters they faced. Like that's the equivalent of Dizzy Dean. And I, I was right. just thinking about that, and I, it just blows my mind to, th- to think of what the scale of what Dizzy Dean was doing with the Gas House Gang mm-hmm. and think about that in today's terms. Oh, he's striking out batters as a starting pitcher at double the league rate, and it would be mm-hmm. like 50%. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh... 
uh, impressive, impressive achievement and just really interesting to kind of consider the, the context. So, um, so moving on, uh, we wanted to hit on, we had a few other uh, listener questions. Uh, so um, uh, uh, Matt, who's uh, at MattR262 on uh, Twitter, uh, Matt asked, how much of Matt Carpenter do the St. Louis Cardinals need to see before he gets the DFA? And, uh, you know, Ben, I think we talked about Carpenter last off day. We, we've seen him, you know, continue to get quite a bit of playing time in the last week. What, what do you think in response to Matt's question there? I think that Schilt, uh, as a manager, has very wisely stressed, stressed plate approach and sort of the process it has been what is, has come through in terms of a narrative that you need to trust the process. You know, we want hard contact. We want good plate appearances. We think if we're doing that, those things, the runs will come. And uh, when you look at Carpenter's numbers, he's had a lot of good contact. But then when you also look at some of the work that's been done by Eno Saris and uh, some of the writing that's been done. Joe Sheehan uh, also has made observations about the baseball. And uh, what folks are noticing is that uh, the changes that Major League Baseball has made to the baseball, um, they've loosened up the core a little bit. They've raised that, that has had the impact of raising the seams a little bit. And so what you're seeing is perhaps the ball is jumping off of the bat, but it's not carrying quite the way that it used to. And a lot of some of this is also anecdotal, but it it seems that uh, Carpenter may be victim of this, where we're looking at his hard hit balls um, and we're expecting 2019 results, but we're getting 2021 results. And I think it's a little early yeah. to draw that conclusion. And at the end of the day, you'd rather hit the ball 105, 110 miles an hour than 90 or 95. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, he's, he's not finding the outfield grass or the wall or the bleachers with this hard contact. And so with Justin Williams I, uh, also making hard contact and Tyler O'Neill coming off the D, the uh, injured list, I, I think it's going to be harder to find Carpenter plate appearances. And then what do you do? Yeah. You know, I meant to, and I, I haven't really looked into it, but I, I meant to look a little bit more at, you know, what are, what are Carpenter's launch angles looking like this year? Because we, on the one hand, I have seen the statistics that his, the, the exit velocities he's putting up are, are really good. And they're, you know, in those, you know, upper nineties, low hundreds kind of thing, but man, he has just looked like a warning track power guy this season. And, you know, when he does connect it, you know, it looks pretty good off the bat, but everything is dying before it gets, you know, gets out of the ballpark. And so, um, the ball is an interesting, uh, variable there. I hadn't really considered that, but that, that seems, you know, pretty, pretty likely. And it's, um, uh, do you think, Oh, I was just going to say, well, the, the, the barrel category that they've created with baseball's savant is meant to capture that ideal launch angle and his barrel percentage is he's in the 98th percentile right now. 
He's in the 96th percentile for average exit velocity and 98th percentile for hard hit percentage. So he's, he's there. So exit velocity is good. Launch angles, good hard hit percentages. All, all that stuff is good. And it's just kind of results that are just have not shown up yet. So I think, you know, Matt's question, you know, what do you, you know, what does that lead to? Do you think, um, I'll be honest. I don't see him being at all close to being DFA'd at this point. And and I did think there was a chance of that at the beginning of the season. And I still think it's we could eventually work our way there. But but I would say he's actually performed better this first month than I think we kind of maybe expected. We could see based on what he'd done in spring training and last year. But you know the results still aren't quite there. So I don't know where where do you think he goes from here. I think there are plate appearances to be had against right-handed pitching. Uh, with O'Neill and the the swing and miss in his game, in particular with right-handed breaking stuff, um, I yeah. think it's very easy to construct a lineup that is Carpenter at second, uh, Williams in the outfield um, against righties, Carlson against righties, and then uh, Edmund probably in right against right-handed pitching. And so I think and, and, they're a long ways away from DFAing him because he's hitting the ball hard yeah. and his teammates right. know he's hitting the ball hard and everyone knows that hitting the ball hard is good. And so I think yes. that uh, you would lose the team if you were to cut him uh, in the near term. Now, if he goes into a black hole slump where he's swinging and missing, because he is swinging and missing a lot, he is striking out a lot. But right now, that's kind of the give and take of hard hit balls. And if the hard hits go away and the swings and misses continue, I think you could see him lose a roster spot. But right now, I think we're a long way from that. Yeah. And, you know, we talked earlier about John Nagowski kind of being in that designated hitter role. And and I think we could see Carpenter slide back into that to a degree as well. And I agree with you. I think there's a good chance that he he still, you know, gets some some starts at second base against uh, right handed pitching. I have to admit, I've been really skeptic of Tommy Edmond as an outfielder, but he has looked pretty good. And I am getting to the point where I, I can. Uh, you know, um, I'm okay with seeing Tommy Edmond out there. I don't know that it's what I want to see all the time, but um, I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's better than I would have expected. So, so I think Carpenter still sees some playing time in those kind of situations. And I think even if that tapers off and, you know, let's say for example, O'Neill performs well. And so you have a regular outfield of O'Neill Williams and Carlson, um, you know, or certainly when Bader comes back too, that changes it. Uh, but even then, I think Carpenter moves to that basically, you know, designated pinch hitter role essentially, and you know he can get a pinch hit at bat every single day, and you know a couple a time or two in the field a week. And frankly, to some extent, I hope that happens because I wrote that that uh, piece for the site about how he could potentially break the uh, <laughs> all-time record for walks by a pinch hitter. And essentially, since I wrote that, he hasn't been pinch hitting; he's been starting. So I would I would appreciate it if they kind of help me serve that narrative that I created. Yeah, Bader comes coming back from the injured list certainly complicates matters. But again, Bader has a lot of swing and miss in his game and struggles against right-handed hitting, the same as O'Neill. And so I still think you're going to be able to get 
plate appearances for yeah. Matt Carpenter against right-handed hitters. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we also had a question from uh, at Dan card 69, uh, who asks uh, the biggest weakness or concerns in Schultz managing style so far this season, not overly criticizing him, just moments or decisions that stand out with, uh, and we have a series of emojis here. So this first one's kind of like a yikes. The next one's kind of like a, hmm, and the last one's like a, a scream. So, so Ben, any managerial moments you saw so far this year that led you to a, a yikes emoji, a hmm emoji or a scream emoji? You know, not really this year. Uh, the, the yikes and scream and hmm uh, that I have for him is in the postseason when he leaves a starter in too long, um, in particular Adam Wainwright. Uh, and I think that's overall Schilt's inclination is to let a player lose the game rather than make a move to try to win it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not a big fan of that in the postseason. In the regular season, you saw him do it the other night with Gallegos uh, when he struggled early in his appearance. Uh, he stuck with Gallegos and Gallegos lost them the game. Um, But I was okay with that in April. I think if it were October, I would have been screaming at the TV. Uh, And not because there were five infielders, just because he was sticking with a reliever who didn't have his best stuff. And you you can't really afford to do that in the postseason. But in the regular season, you can. And when you show that type of trust in guys, you develop uh, trust as a two-way street and you develop loyalty, and it helps create a bond as a team. And so I'm okay with it. And especially when you're talking about a pitcher who has as good a stuff and who has been as good as Gallegos, like I'm okay with that, um, you know, in that context. Um, but this year, I haven't had a yeah. lot of problems uh, with what Schilt has done. Um you know, it's fun to talk about lineup construction and I don't know what type of veteran proviness tokens he gives to players and how he chooses to move up and down. Um, but I, I did think it was really weird when he batted Carlson in the bottom third of the lineup, even though Carlson is one of the best three hitters on the team. That was super weird to me. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that like, I guess it kind of made me scratch my chin, like, what is he doing? But, uh, yeah. you know, it's lineup construction and it doesn't have that much impact on an individual game. So it wasn't that egregious, yeah. you know? So I don't know. Is there anything that he does that drives you nuts? Uh, to a, a really, really low level, I have to say. I'm I'm still a pretty strong proponent of, of Mike Schilt. And I, I've seen kind of a, a sort of simmering in, you know, Cardinals Twitter and just the Cardinals verse in general of people. I've seen people even suggest, oh, he's, he's as bad as Matheny or he's doing Matheny-like things. And I think most of that is just, you know, anytime you see a move on a game you were watching that didn't work out, it's, you know, there's that sort of momentary... Uh, laps or, or, you know, momentary frustration, but I don't think we're seeing that on a wide basis at all. And, you know, to me, one of the things that sort of defined Mike Matheny for me was I just, I frequently felt like he had a sort of deer in the headlights look to him and, and the game would go a way he wasn't expecting. 
and he just he froze and he didn't know what to do. So he, you know, brought Michael Walker in after not pitching for a month. You know, anyway, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, last night, first of all, I have to say I loved the five man infield thing that he that he pulled. That's some good, weird baseball. I like it. Um, that's fun. Uh, I, that was a moment, you know, I was watching the game, but you know, you're kind of watching dabbling on your phone and that he went to the five man infield. I put everything else down. I was like, I want to see how this is going to shake out. Now, part of that is just, it's a five man infield. It's, it's weird. It's fun to see how that's going to shake out. But the other thing about it, and this reminded me so much of Tony La Russa was, you know, he, he had a point of view. Uh, uh, Schilt had a point of view. He had an idea of what he was going to do there. He thought it out ahead of time and he executed it. And that was what I always said about, about Tony, you know, Tony would make moves that I didn't agree with or that frustrated me, but he had thought deeply about what he was going to do in that situation. And he did the thing that he believed was right. You know, I didn't always believe the thing he did was right. And sometimes I think, you know, I was born out and I was right. But a lot of the times it was the other way around. And, and you know, and, and Tony was right. But but to me, as long as the manager has that point of view and kind of is is doing that, um, you know, I I'm pretty supportive of that. And, you know, my quibbles, it, it's a lot of what you said. And the, the, the veteran proving this thing is certainly an issue. It feels like, you know, Wainwright and Yachty, um, but some some others as well sometimes are maybe kind of, you know, deferred to, or, you know, uh, he's, he doesn't step in when maybe uh, you would want him to step in and, you know, pull them out of a game or just, you know, make some kind of an adjustment with them. Um, you know, I think with Edmund, we've seen a little bit of a kind of classic Mike's guys situation that we had with, uh, with Matheny, where certain guys would just seem to earn Matheny's permanent trust forever and he would just keep going back to them that said you know Edmonds Edmonds been pretty good Edmonds been pretty productive I know you and I have talked about some some of our concerns primarily about the fact that he doesn't walk and so there's a lot of batted ball luck that could come into play there but you know as guys go you know and and given the other options there that's not too bad either so you know I I, I don't have any real big issues I would say with with Mike Schilt at this point yeah, I he's he's done a pretty good job and uh at this point in time he seems to be you know making a lot of good choices. Um you know with Edmund I think it's going to be really interesting to see how his style of hitting, you know, he doesn't he has hit some balls pretty hard but overall not really. Um and not a lot of barrels and if his contact first uh, approach works over 162 games um, I'm not a big believer uh, but right now he's hitting and you know it's it's the type of performance that led Schilt to go with Edmund over Randy Rosarena who's also off frankly to a slow start this year um, another guy who yeah and thank goodness. Thank goodness for that. And I know that the, I know the classy thing to say is like, oh, I'm cheering for all these guys once they leave the Cardinals and I want nothing but success for them. And for those of you that genuinely believe that, I want you to know you are a better person than me, because the truth is I kind of want to see these guys wash out because then I don't feel bad or feel frustrated that the Cardinals, you know, blew it or, or missed out yeah. on anybody. So uh, it's not noble, but that's the truth. 
no, I, I know where you're coming from, but, um, the, the blind spot such as it is that Schilt has for like an Edmund that led him to go with Edmund over a Rosa Reina, uh, you know, is concerning because if he's looking at Tommy Edmund and he's looking at Randy or Rosa Reina and he's like, I want to go with this guy over this guy. And maybe Schilt is much more knowledgeable than me and, and he's going to do it. Um, and he's going to make the right choice. But uh, it seems like a Rosa Reina just has more tools that will translate to the majors than Edmund at this point in time. And so uh, we'll see what happens. But Edmund is a fascinating experiment because he doesn't strike out, he doesn't really walk, and he doesn't really hit the ball hard with great regularity. And so what does that mean in the year 2021? Right. And I have to say, too, and some of this is just my own conjecture, but I do feel like Edmund is a very smart player who's very intentional with his approach. And it's an unorthodox approach. He's not doing the kind of mainstream thing, but he is finding, you know, enough success to be successful with it. So I'm also curious to see, you know, if he runs into some of these regression challenges that you and I are saying, does he have the capacity to make some adjustments in his game and maybe, you know, to do some things. I, I believe his walk rate is actually up a little bit this year. It's so early. That's not really super worth paying attention to, but um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Um, So uh, last week we took a look back at an old, uh, old box score and we kind of enjoyed that. We heard from several people that they enjoyed that. So I think we're going to incorporate this into a regular or semi-regular feature here. We're going to call this the box score of yore. So I uh, wanted to look back at a, a game from the past that was somehow relevant to what we'd seen in the last stretch of games. And uh, we had a couple we were thinking about this week, but um, uh, a f- few nights ago, uh, actually game one of the uh, series in Washington, of course, the Cardinals hit five home runs. And during the broadcast, they mentioned and I think showed some clips to uh, a game from Friday, July 12th, 1996, when the Cardinals set the team record by hitting seven home runs in a game. Uh, you will not be surprised to learn that that game was a 2.20 p.m. start at uh, Wrigley Field in Chicago. So, um, Ben, do you have the box score up there with you as well? I sure do. Uh, nothing better I than thought- uh, 10 running the Cubs at Wrigley. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And just for a little bit of context. So at this point, so again, I said this was July 12th. So this would have been just right after the all-star break. Um, uh, the, uh, Cardinals were 47 and 42 at the time. And the Cubs were the mere opposite of that. They were 42 and 47. So, uh, the Cardinals were pretty good. The Cubs were, you know, bad, but not terrible. Um, kind of looks like about where they were at this particular year. Um, I thought since they they hit all these home runs, I thought it would be fun to kind of go th- from spot to spot in the game where they hit these home runs. Um, but did you want to touch on anything about the, the lineups or just any names before we did that? Well, the first thing I want to say is the Cardinals scored 13 runs and the game duration was two hours and 34 minutes. <laughs> Which is hard and for me. Steve Crackle was pitching for the Cubs. <laughs> yes. As I recall, was not noted for his uh, quick quick work to the plate. 
Um, no, not at all. Um, the thing that I I found really fun about this box score is it's another uh, Tony Larusa joint, and and you can, it really just comes through. <laughs> you know, when you look at the pinch hitters, when you look at the the way the way he makes defensive changes and those types of things. Um, but but the most fun for me was that uh, in this box score. Uh, Royce Clayton started at shortstop and let off. Ozzie Smith pinch hit for Tom Pagnozzi. Um, but then the other fun thing for me uh, was that Willie McGee took over in center field for Ray Lankford. Um, and, I, and I thought that was kind of fun because, uh, you know, Ray Lankford, we, we talked a little bit last episode, is the player of the 90s for the Cardinals and a, and really an all-time great Cardinal and a worthy successor in center field to Willie McGee. Yet in this game, uh, it was Willie McGee taking over for Ray Lankford in center field mid-game. And I thought that was just kind of a neat little feature of the box score in this game uh, here today. Yeah. Well, and of course, Danny Schaefer, who came into the game for Ron Gant, came in in left field and then went to catcher. That's not a move that you see. Too often. <laughs> they, it, it later became known as the Eli Marrero. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. And this is 96. So I think this is, this is, this is proto Marrero right here. Yes. So, so anyway, um, so the two starting pitchers, I already mentioned uh, uh, Steve Traxel um, for the Cubs, who I recall being just, just one of the worst junk ballers I've ever seen. Just, just nothing at all, just kind of throwing garbage up there and, and hoping for the best. And he pitched at Wrigley Field, so I don't think that often worked out too well for him. Um, and he was facing uh, Fred Bird's good friend, Andy Bennis, was pitching for the Cardinals in this one. So uh, so anyway, let's jump down to the game itself, and we'll, we'll kind of highlight those seven home runs here. So uh, no score. Uh, the Cardinals were, of course, the visiting team. No score in the top of the first. Um, no score in the top or in the bottom of the first, uh, in the top of the second, uh, the Cardinals got on the board, uh, uh, John Mabry, uh, singled to right field, um, to score, uh, Brian Jordan. Uh, and then later Mike Gallego singled, um, to score Gary Gaetti. So there's some guys for you. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, and, and Ben, jump in wherever if you got something to. Um, well, I I really in, but... enjoyed that there were, and and I'm gonna just jump ahead here in the top of the third inning. Uh, John Mabry and Gary Gaetti had back to back home runs, uh, which is such a wonderfully mid '90s accomplishment. And also perhaps atypical of what you would think of John Mabry, former Cardinals hitting coach, um, who seemed to be anti-home run uh, during his tenure as hitting coach. Uh, but I really don't want to get too much further oh. into the Matheny era and and what went on with the offense in those years. Well, I, I, re- I remember John Mabry being relatively anti-home run as a first baseman as well. Yes, so, he, he was um, a very much an, a 90s first baseman as opposed to a John Nagowski type first baseman. And, you know, and so I, I really came of age like the 86 and 87 Cardinals were the first two teams that I really like followed and watched every, not I watched every game, but I watched a lot of games. I knew the players, et cetera. 
And uh, Jack Clark was my first kind of favorite Cardinal. And I just really always loved power hitting first baseman. And he set the template for me as well for the idea that your first baseman is a power hitter. And and after the Jack Clark era ended, we soon after had the Pedro Guerrero era. Yes. And I, I think Pedro Guerrero is an often underrated Cardinal, um, you know, really great first baseman, still kind of power hitting. And then we had the John Mabry era. And that was that was a letdown for me. <laughs> uh, I came of age at the same time. Uh, and in fact, I demanded a Jack Clark poster, uh, the only one that my dad, a Yankees fan, could ostensibly find for me was a Yankees Jack Clark poster. So in my room, I had an Ozzie Smith. I had the Anheuser-Busch like kind of painted Stan Musial and Bob Gibson. And then I had a Yankees Jack Clark poster because I was such a big Jack Clark fan. Nice, nice. Well, that's impressive. That's impressive. I like that. And then uh, Gary Gaetti there as well. Of course, uh, again, coming of age when I did, I was introduced to Gary Gaetti when his uh, awful 87 Twins team was beating the Cardinals in that World Series. But one thing I want to note here is that I'm pretty sure when Gary Gaetti hit this home run, he had uh, no ear flaps on either side of his batting helmet. Absolutely so, not. And, and, he, and he was one of the one of the last to do that. Yeah, and Gary Gaetti, uh, 1980s professional baseball heel who kind of resembled a 1980s professional wrestling heel. And it was very he difficult really uh, for me to like him once he came to the Cardinals because of the 87 World Series. And it was a child, it was the hate of a child um, that I could not overcome. And I still have not overcome when it comes to Kent Herbeck, so... Uh, my apologies to Gary Gaetti and Kent Herbeck. Uh, it is entirely personal because you cheated with the ventilation system at the Metrodome. <laughs> All right. So uh, in the top of the third there, uh, after uh, Hacksaw Gary, Gary Gaetti hit that home run, uh, the Cubs did score a, a run uh, in the bottom of the third. But jumping ahead, home run wise, we get to the top of the fifth inning. And the top of the fifth begins with, again, back-to-back home runs. So this game, like the one the other night for the Cardinals, or earlier this season for the Cardinals, we had two different back-to-back home runs. Um, this time, uh, Ray Lankford and Ron Gant. Uh, what do you want to say about those two beautiful, beautiful men? That's, that's just an awesome 1996 back-to-back home run. Like, that's really, yeah. you know, that season... Langford and Gant going back to back is just very poetic. And I love that it happened in this game when they, when they set the home run record for a game. It's, it's really great. Yeah. Uh, two guys just, just super jacked fit, just guys that looked like good baseball players, you know, like if you had never seen them play, but you saw them walk out in their uniforms, you'd be like, Oh, that guy's good. That guy's good. And, and you'd be right. <laughs> yes. yeah, two, of my, two of my favorites, but the home run barrage was, and, and by the way, at this point, th- these are still off of Steve Traxel. So these are, uh, so these, per- they, they chased him, Ron, the, this back-to-back home run combo chased Traxel from the game in the fifth inning um, and, uh, and pushed the Cardinals win percentage to 96% in the top of the fifth inning. <laughs> yeah. So, so Traxel has left the game. Uh, Cardinals are ahead seven to one. 
Um, but uh, later in the inning, our old pal Gary Gaetti comes up and uh, he homers uh, yet again, driving in uh, Brian Jordan. So Gaetti has now homered twice in the game. The Cardinals are up to five home runs so far in the game. So this is the total from the other night. This team had this um, by the top of the fifth. Uh, but they weren't done. Let's move ahead to the top of the sixth inning. Yes, we we had a a single from Andy uh, Benes, and then a, a walk by Ray Lankford, and a uh, walk by Ron Gant, and then Brian Jordan strides up to the plate and uh, hits another home run, a grand slam. Uh, and that took the Cardinals' win expectancy. I said win percentage earlier. I meant win expectancy. It, it took it to 100% to win the game because the score was 9-1 to one <laughs> at that point in time. Yep, so 9-1. to one. Um, At this point, they were facing Tanyan Sturtz. So, uh, again, that's a name, Tanyan Sturtz. Uh, <laughs> so that was the top of the sixth. Uh, Cardinals are ahead, uh, 12 to one after that. Um, so this game is, this game is pretty much over. Um, but, uh, moving on, uh, the game continues. Andy Bennis lasted through the sixth inning. And, uh, then the Cardinals brought in, uh, Kenton Bottenfield, who I just learned the other night became a, a, a Christian rock musician, um, following his playing career. Oh, so, no, 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 no. Bottenfield came in pitching for the Cubs. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got turned around here. Yes. Ooh, yeah. Which sorry. I sorry. Until I looked at this box score, I did not realize that Bottenfield was on the Cubs. Like my Kent Bottenfield, uh, in my mind, he is a Cardinal and an Angel, and he begot yes. Jim Edmonds, and that's that's Kent Bottenfield. I I don't know about him right. bef- before that, and so that he pitched in this game is a fun little. Uh, historical footnote um the uh the other uh fun thing um about that uh is as you said we were just uh discussing him uh via text message uh with one of our friends the other night and uh after his playing career he became a christian uh musician and a recording artist which i also did not appreciate because Kent Bottenfield doesn't really exist in my mind once he went out to Anaheim. Uh, yeah. Which is the way a and, lot of baseball for the record, fans feel about Anaheim. Yeah. And for the record, we did look him up on Spotify and his music sounds uh, about like you expect it would about like you expect it would. So um, moving on. Uh, <laughs> so now Kent Bottenfield did pitch a clean inning though. So that was one of the few clean innings for the Cubs in the game. Um, so we're still 12 to one, but then in the top of the eighth inning, Ron Gant comes up again and Ron Gant gets his second home run of the game off of Terry Adams. So at that point, um, uh, it's now 13 to one Cardinals. And that's, uh, you know, the second, uh, Ron Gant Homer of the game, uh, and a lot of fun there. And, um, the other, uh, fun aspect for me uh, personally is uh, in the ninth inning with the Cardinals ahead 13 to three Turk Wendell comes in for the Chicago Cubs and he spent time 
uh, pitching for the Iowa Cubs and was very superstitious. And he would do weird things like brush his teeth in between innings, jump over the foul line, etc. And um, and so it was a real treat when I scrolled down uh, to the end of this game uh, and saw his name in the ninth inning pitching for the Cubs. Absolutely. No, that I, I was excited to see that as well. But you know what else I was excited to see? Speaking of the ninth inning. So Andy Bennis um, pitched uh, through the eighth inning. So he, he pitched a solid eight innings, you know, given up three runs. Solid start from Andy Bennis. The Cardinals are ahead 13 to three at this point. Uh, Tony Lutus is managing. Who comes in for the ninth inning? Dennis Eckersley comes in. <laughs> you go to the closer. It's the ninth inning, the closer pitches. That's how it works. Yes. That's how it works. Why is it who's he gonna come in to face? The absolute bottom of the lineup. <laughs> and you have to We think. need Dennis Eckersley to come in in a thirteen to three ball game to face Tyler Houston, Jose Hernandez, and Scott Bullet. We gotta close this thing out. Is there a more I mean as we kind of talked about last week, Larusa games just have such a Larusa touch to them. But to me, that was just the absolute cherry on the top of this one. <laughs> yeah, that that is uh, really really rad, and um, it made me wonder what his um, what his usage was before then. Because uh, it is a Larusa thing, I will bring my closer in for the ninth, regardless, because he hasn't pitched for like four days. You know, like right. You know, coming off of the All Star game and all that. Um, you know what? What? That's and that's my assumption too. He probably hadn't he hadn't pitched for a while. They wanted to get him um, get him some work. So, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, any other? Thoughts on the on the game? Um, I, it was just a really fun uh, trip down memory lane because there were so many good uh, late, uh, mid to late '90s names involved in this game, and you know it was the beginning of the Tony Larusa era as well, and uh, that fun postseason run they had that ended in heartbreak. Uh, but you saw. Uh, sort of the way that this team could score runs uh, with some of the power that they had in that lineup. And uh, it was really fun that the home runs uh, from earlier this week sort of conjured up the memory of this game. And uh, it was fun to revisit it, uh, just looking at the box score and going through the play-by-play and seeing how the game unfolded. I just really enjoyed it. Well, yeah, and it reminded me how this 96 team was a little bit of a turning point from what had been a a pretty bad team for, you know, four or five years there, and particularly a team with just no kind of offense at all. And so, you know, having a, I mean, a a Ray Lankford, Ron Gant, Brian Jordan outfield is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty, pretty strong outfield right there. So, um, so anyway, we've, uh, we've been going on for a little while here, Ben, I think it's about time to wrap that up. So, uh, what is it that you're going to be watching for over this next stretch of games? Um, it's going to be uh, whether or not Tyler O'Neill returns to his primary left fielder role, um, or if Schilt is going to disrupt those roles uh, after he returns from the injured list 
and continue to give uh, plate appearances and starts to Williams and Edmund in the outfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, similarly, um, I think I'm really looking at how, uh, how O'Neill slots in out there and I'm trying to remember. So it looks like the next off day is May 10th. Um, are we expecting Bader back before that? I can't recall exactly what his timetable is. Um, well, he was, he was recently cleared to swing, um, so I think it'll be right around that time. They haven't given an exact yeah. uh, time frame for him because I think they want him to get back to sort of yeah. game speed before they make a determination. And you can kind of see that even yeah. with O'Neill, they did not yeah. activate him until they were sure that he was ready to go and they had him do simulated games. And it sounds like they're going to wait and see before they activate him. Uh, for the weekend yeah. series uh, just so that they can be sure. And I think they'll probably take a similar approach with Bader. Yeah. Well, so, and I guess what I'm kind of maybe getting to here is, and I've seen some people already asking, you know, Oh, might they go out and make a move? Might they go out and, you know, add a, you know, and particularly add an outfielder. That's really looking like the big um, hole in the offense at this point. And I, I think it's, you know, really too early that they would do that kind of thing, but you know, their, their plan a was for some combination of Bader O'Neill Williams, Thomas to step forward and, you know, fill out the two non Dylan Carlson slots out there. And, you know, we're coming up on a month into the season here and and Williams looks like a, a strong maybe, um, and we and the others, uh, you know, much much less than that. So we're going to get Tyler O'Neill dealt back into the mix here, and I think we're going to he's going to have you know maybe one last chance to um, you know announce his presence with authority. Maybe it'll be after that next off day that that Bader's back in there. But assuming that's the way things go, and we don't see other in other injuries, I think it'll be over this next stretch. And at that point, we're pushing probably towards the end of May, but assuming that none of those guys have come forward, I would start to think that might be the point where it could be reasonable that they, they started to, you know, at least look for um, uh, a move they could make to fill in there. That said, I feel like almost no deals get done before the all-star break these days. So, um, so that's kind of what I'll be looking for. Yeah. And, and, if you're the Cardinals, you probably aren't too sad about your lefty showing signs of being viable because it's a lot easier to get a left-handed batter who has some swing and miss in his game, uh, good opportunities because there are so many more right-handed pitchers in the league um, than a a right-handed batter who has a lot of swing and miss in his game, like an O'Neill or a Bader. And so uh, with Bader coming back, you know, if he can be a league average hitter, this is a this is a good lineup um, and a very good defensive team as well. And so, I think the Cardinals are probably feeling pretty good because if you had to identify the two outfielders who were at the top of the pecking order, I think you would have Carlson number one and Bader number two entering the season. But Bader has not played because of injury, and so I expect. Uh, you know, he's going to get a solid run of starts once he's ready to go. 
and it and that's going to probably bump Carlson over to right field, and then it'll be, you know, perhaps Williams, O'Neill, Edmund, Dean in left, depending on matchups. Uh, but with Bader's swing and miss, you know, Schilt can sit him against a tough righty as well, and go with a Carpenter, Williams, Carlson, Edmund lineup as well if he wants to, and so. Um, these are all good problems to have. Um, but if you're O'Neill, you really got to start to show something because your opportunity to cement yourself as a primary option in the outfield, uh, appears to be dwindling here. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, uh, Ben, it has been fun as always, uh, chatting with you on, uh, on this off day. Um, it looks like, uh, yeah, we've been, uh, pretty much weekly on, uh, on doing these, but, uh, it does look like, uh, May 10th is, uh, the next time we'll be, uh, we'll be coming back. So we've got, a uh, got a more like two week break here. So we'll, uh, we'll have a little more to, to look at and comment on, I guess, over that, uh, over that period of time. Um, anything else you wanted to say before we wrap it up? Um, you know, the minor league season is going to be starting up uh, at the beginning of May. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for those box scores because we're going to have actual minor league baseball for the first time in about two years. And it's going to be a lot of fun to see how the prospect uh, lists shuffle as a result of the game action that we're going to get after, you know, really not having anything for a year uh, for us to look at for these players. So, uh, you know, if the Cardinals action isn't enough for you, keep an eye on those minor league box scores as well, because they're going to be, uh, start popping up here, uh, in a couple weeks. Yeah. And I have a feeling we'll be talking about the minor leagues, um, on that uh, show on May 10th. So anyway, thanks again for listening to Cardinals off day. Um, again, if you haven't yet, uh, you can subscribe at Substack. Uh, excuse me, cardinalsoffday.substack.com. You'll get notifications. You'll get the occasional written piece there as well. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at cardinalsoffday as well. Uh, And otherwise, we will see you on the next Cardinals Off Day.